Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high performance, innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from the United Kingdom, London, a land that has a colourful and thought-provoking history. And in this episode, we're going to speak to a leader who has a very people-centric leadership style and a philosophy to boot. Let's welcome our guest, CTO at TeamSnap, Shane Emmons. Welcome, Shane. So, Shane, welcome to CTO Confessions. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me on. Brilliant. So um, tell the audience about yourself. What do you do? and Who do you work for? Yeah, so I am the CTO, the chief technology officer of a growth stage startup called TeamSnap. They provide organization and communication software and really a platform for adult rec and amateur and youth sports, uh, anything in that space from who's going to the game to what they need to bring to registration and all kinds of stuff beyond that. Uh, beyond CTO TeamSnap, I also teach uh, at the mass in the University of Michigan at the Masters of Comp Sci department, wow. and uh, kind of do just random coaching and advising elsewhere around the industry. Brilliant! Yes, I was reading around that. You you kind of um, are, are you a professional coach, or is that something you do just kind of a part time type thing? Just a, a part time thing. It's uh, something I kind of fell into accidentally, and I really enjoy it. It it comes from my enjoying of teaching and educating, and realizing uh, kind of that idea that you teach best something that you know just one or two levels removed. And so I feel like now that I've grown in leadership, I'm I, I have a a base to teach other new leaders um, from. Brilliant. That's great. I love that. It sounds like you're a bit of a natural, so that's that's always good. You know, some people just get it. Uh, other people need to kind of like me need to go to training to kind of get trained into thinking differently. So that's great that you you got that out of the bag. So so in terms of um, Team Snap, then you, you talk about this platform that helps people organise their kind of teams and stuff. So is this a kind of like at the kind of professional level, or is it a kind of school level, or is it across the sure. board? Sure. It it technically it is an everything level, though we really focus on that youth demographic, say kids soccer high school. Um, we do have colleges, and but you mo- would see much more of your rec associations. I mean, technically, we have a professional NASCAR team that uses it, but that's that's much beside the point. All of hockey in Canada uses Team Snap, so we actually provide services for every single hockey team yeah. in Canada. And it's, it's, it's really about, if you think about it, there's a lot of larger enterprises that are going to naturally have these kind of software packages themselves. We're providing it for all the smaller businesses or just teams. They're all volunteer based is really what we're focusing on. Our, our mission is to take the work out of play. None, most of our customers are not paid to do their job. They do it because they volunteer and love sport. And so our job is to take as much burden off of them so they can focus on what they really want to do, which is coaching kids or, you know, yes. getting yeah. healthy or whatever the case may be. That's brilliant. Yeah. I kind of see it, it kind of uh, lubricates the kind of cogs of what's going on and takes some of the kind of work out, out of their, uh, you know, uh, manual, manual kind of uh, operations that they need to kind of do. Precisely. Uh, Brilliant, brilliant. So in terms of um, obviously the company, how long have the company been going on for? 
Team Snap has existed for a little over 12 years. It started first inside of an agency. Technically, it is coming up on its 11th birthday as an incorporated company. Um, yeah, just shy of probably a month or two right now. Yes. Yeah. Happy birthday. Next yeah, thank you. Um, and so coming back to yourself then, in terms of yourself as a tech leader, um, you, mm-hmm. in, uh, tell us a little bit about your journey of how you got to this kind of position, because you've had quite a few leadership positions in the tech field, haven't you? Yeah, I've had have a circuitous route to get to where I am at TeamSnap. Uh, uh, in the midst of university, mm-hmm. I ended up joining an insurance company and spent a decade there. Ultimately, do, uh, I was a programmer and that's that was my trade, but really what I lucked into was the early um, data science and data analytics for the company before it was named data scientist by the likes of LinkedIn to really bump salaries. Um, and <laughs> yeah. then uh, I started exploring, did a startup that was uh, probably one of the earliest code schools. Uh, we made the uh, mistake of not charging people to come to the code school and we expected to run off of alumni donations that didn't work, but I think mm-hmm. we did lay a really good foundation for code schools and how to respect the students that came in so that uh, it didn't become a meat grinder of just how do we extract money out of people who are interested in something. Yeah. Um, ran a really large and still to this day run a really large open source project for um, financial calculations inside of the Ruby programming language. Uh, that was a need at the insurance company. And so today still run that and have, you know, millions upon millions of installs across all kinds wow. of companies, which is cool to see. Uh, yes, okay. Big ones like Shopify, every every piece of dollar that goes through Shopify is going to touch that code at some point if it's on their Ruby stack, which is cool. Yeah. But um, ultimately started getting a little dissatisfied at the insurance company. It was a 150 year old company, so it was really set in its ways. And uh, it was very hard to rebel. I'm a natural, I naturally question what's going on. And so I, I, hard to rebel there. There was a lot of organizational stagnation, which is fine. Uh, so started looking around and happened to come across TeamSnap on a podcast uh, where they were talking about remote work. Um, and I just thought that place sounded cool. I had been interviewing at other big name startups, but not really getting excited. And so I just threw out to them, hey, I'm interested. I've, I've got stuff going on. I don't know if you have all of it work going on, but... Uh, what's what's happening and they kind of liked my profile and we uh, like 18 hours later decided to to make it so and kind of that's where my career started there um, brilliant yeah that's uh so uh i mean so the transition from being a a, a kind of uh software engineer uh, i'm gonna get told mm-hmm. off by our ceo for saying this but kind of geek uh, similar to myself i used to be i used to be uh, an embedded software engineer and then de-geeked uh, into kind of the leadership space. Um, how What was that transition like for you? Yeah, so it was joining the startup uh, when TeamSnap was, it was probably, I was like the third engineer. There was a lot of opportunity to kind of ultimately make a name for yourself of like building things out. And so I started by architecting our platform. They had found product market fit before I was hired and it was time to scale it up. And so I made a name for myself by building a platform that would scale us to whatever we needed to go. And through that, just kept getting opportunities to first, um, it kind of showed, you know what the business is doing, you know, beyond just the technology, start joining in our senior leadership meetings, just as 
an IC. You're not you're not a leader or anything like that. But they started giving opportunities to kind of see how the sausage was made in terms of the business and the decision making. Yeah. And I just kept taking those opportunities of like, okay, here we go. We need somebody. We're big enough. We now need to officially think strategically about technology. So I became a principal architect. And then very quickly after that became a director of engineering. And through me just continuing to prod, I became CTO. I was like, we need this, we need this, we need this. We're a technology company. Yeah. Um, and was given that opportunity by just kind of raise, you know, it was it was as much luck as it was just continuously saying we need this. Yes. Um and yeah, became CTO and immediately had a bout of imposter syndrome when I looked around the room <laughs> with clear leader eyes and realized, oh, every one of these people has had a decade or more of leadership experience. I'm the complete newbie. How do I bootstrap myself? And that's yeah. ultimately where I went back to university. I was like, I'm going to get an MBA because everybody around this table has one. Right. And I want to accelerate that and... um I don't know if the MBA necessarily opened door extra doors, but it did give me a way to bootstrap and have a kind of same context and really just speed up. I think everybody professes to want to help you at that point in your career, but you kind of realize that everybody is so busy, they can't help you that much. And that's really where I had to turn in and just start educating myself or finding ways to to build up and become more and more of a leader and yeah. go from beyond CTO of just owning the technology to acting as VP of engineering and running you know, teams and teams of teams and such. And um, yeah, just keep taking opportunity. Brilliant. Yeah. Sounds like a, a mixture of luck, and but also being in the right place and right uh, person uh, when the luck arrives, you know, kind of thing. It's uh, yes. ready for the opportunity. Yeah, um, exactly. So we kind of mentioned teams there. So um, I'm kind of very curious around um, reading your kind of LinkedIn. I, I, love, mm -hmm. I love what you've got in your in your description. Uh, it resonates with me uh, a lot. Um, so in terms of creating high performing teams, um, how? So what's your kind of tip? Uh, what's your kind of uh, tips around creating high performing teams and getting them going, leading them? Sure. So it's if we really want high performing teams that consistently and over the long term do high performance, uh, I think we have to, we fundamentally have to look at it differently than I've seen a lot of blitz scaling where the high performing team is you hire the best people, run them ragged and turn them out as fast as possible. It's definitely not the way I create high performing teams. I'm kind of the, you go slow to go fast. Mm. So what's the actual go slow part for me? And that's uh, the fundamental principles of ownership and alignment and getting teams to be full, fully own that they're problem solvers and be aligned with the problems that they're solving and really committed to that full, we do something called fist to five for each of these questions is how much do you feel you own this decision? How much do you feel aligned with it? And we want everybody to max out at a five. We don't want zeros. We don't want fours. We want everybody at five. And that takes a lot of work. That's something that it can be accomplished in months, but it's not going to be accomplished in weeks or days. But it does allow us then as leaders to detach from the team and really allow them to run autonomously because we have such high trust between each other and an understanding of where we're going that instead of having one leader for every team 
and then some leader that coordinates all those leaders of leaders. You can have a leader for two, three, five teams because really they become coaches. And that's probably ultimately my goal as a leader is I don't want to direct you day to day um, or even direct you by some other people directing on my behalf. I want to coach you because you're on the field playing the game. I'm just on the sideline here cheering you on and helping you uh, with advice. Yeah, I like that. um, In terms of uh, the kind of challenges around, it does sound, you know, very aligned to uh, high-performing teams that I've spoken to and companies that have got them. I mean, in terms of uh, decision-making, you know, that kind of coalface or the team level, uh, do you find sometimes the decisions trusting those decisions to be made to kind of head in the right direction. Is that something you find challenging or um, you manage it particularly? It is definitely challenging if I haven't built the full context with the team. It's as much as I want to just give a team the free reign to do everything. um, We can't do that until we've built trust. And it doesn't mean that what I do is make decisions for them up until the point I finally trust their decision-making. It means we have more explicit decision-making. Ultimately, we want their, them to be able to make every decision possible unless it's irreversible. Um, and so it just takes that ownership and alignment building to make sure we're all together on that page. Um, and yeah, to, to rewind to what that really means is is, is it difficult to trust their decisions? No, it just means that we have more reviews of the decisions. Yes. And that is a way that we try to really treat it. It's not that they're coming, I, I personally really hate giving recommendations to somebody that ultimately they get to thumbs up or thumbs down my decision. I just, I don't like it. I would rather not make the decision, just go yes. make it yourself. Yes. Uh, so with teams in that case, all I really want to do is ask them questions. It's, you know, whether you use the five why patterns or it just comes natural to you, ask them questions about the decisions they're making and wait for that spark. When you get down uh, finally to maybe something you felt was missing that they go, Hmm. So instead of asking, did you think about this one thing that I'm actually really worried about? You start them down the path of your thinking. And that's, it takes, it doesn't take that long to build it up. And we've written explicit, like, here's how we make a decision in a very abstract way. And, you can bootstrap that pretty quick and have people flow. Brilliant. I love this. And so, um, again, I'm curious around how this way of leading came up because um, as you're describing this, um, I have to confess, I, 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 I aligned to that way of thinking. I haven't always aligned to that way of thinking. And uh, I think I learned it through getting burned and also um, the feeling I got that it wasn't right. How did you learn this? Uh, what made you think like this? Yeah. So, It really started of kind of those initial, I think probably almost every leader has these initial failures where you're going to come out of the gate and you're going to start making decisions and you can do it from many different, you can do it from benevolence, you can do it from malice, you can do it like, finally, I've got my power, I'm going to shape this the way I want. It's, you know, I came out of benevolence of like, I've earned this, I have this wisdom, let me just try to give it to you. Um, and it goes to something I had a personal coach that, uh, finally solidified it for me of the difference was instruction versus education and instruction is all about telling people how to do something and just kind of ultimately beating it into them, uh, somehow through repetition or policy or whatever, 
to get them there. And education is really about, it's like the Latin is to bring out of. And so learning as a leader through my failures of trying to instruct people how to do things, how to instead educate them. And I mean, I had a confluence of things. I had a personal coach. I was teaching and had been in the education space for a long time. And I had run that open source project where I can't hurt. There's literally thousands of uh, contributors and they're entirely asynchronous. I can't tell them what to do. Um, so how do I, you know, create a culture inside of a massively asynchronous um, organization? And ultimately all that kind of bled in to eventually get me into the space of this much more collaborative coaching style. It's, uh, it's just, yeah, through failure and experience. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting to hear people's journeys towards uh, a better way of leading. You know, I, I always find interesting how people kind of get there. Um, maybe I'll do a podcast one day of my spectacular failures of how I got to where I am now, because I'm very different to the way. And it sounds, you know, I think we all go on that journey to kind of learn what mm -hmm. works and what doesn't. Um, and, and, and from reading your kind of LinkedIn as well, uh, I just want to touch on, you know, some of the some of the things you say there, because it kind of gives an indication of the of the underlying purpose, you know, what you're trying yeah. to be. There's something very purposeful around your leadership style. Um, so um, if I may, if it's okay with mm -hmm. you, um, uh, I, I, you, you talk about your philosophy of work and life, you know. Um, yeah. Do you want to speak to that um, for a short while to kind of give the audience an idea of who you are and what, what kind of person you are? Totally. I, I think the we'll give the actual five uh, kind of philosophies there and then maybe the underlying real drive of the belief there. So uh, my philosophies for work and life is everyone is their own authority. Diversity nurtures growth. To live unattached is to truly be free, be excellent in everything we choose to do. And organizations like people with them in them are organisms, not machines. Mm. Ultimately, I do feel there's kind of a couple things that drive me. One is I think fundamentally we can work better. I think I used to really bristle when I was at the insurance company and hear people essentially do the, I don't live to work, I work to live. And it ultimately just made me kind of sad because it meant that they were spending five out of their seven days every week doing something they didn't want to do. So yeah. they got two days of joy. That sounds completely like the 80-20 rule tells me that's just backwards. I want to do 20% of the things I don't like so I can do 80% of the things I like. Ideally, I want to do nothing I don't like, but that's not the real world. Yeah. Um, so I really kind of bristle from that. And then I also really bristle of so much of how we work because uh, and what I think actually really drives people down is built back on the industrial revolution and on the back of scientific management where somebody was standing with a stopwatch, seeing how fast somebody could do something and then trying to translate to it that to everybody. Um, and that's not how we work today. We have the industrial revolution gave us machines and now we have software and hardware that eliminate all this stuff that in my mind should be stopwatch checked. Yeah. Like we should automate away all of this. And therefore, all that's left is, I guess, what we would call knowledge work, but it's really creativity. And so we can't scientifically manage creativity like any artist is going to laugh at you if you try to tell them to crank out a, you know, I guess Thomas Kincaid probably cranked out thing. Well, he did when he was alive uh, paintings on a schedule, but uh, true artistry and creativity is it can't be clocked like that. Yeah. And so 
thinking about that and how you can build teams and really ultimately how you can work different. I plan on working a long time and I don't want to work just so I reach some retirement age to get to finally do what I want. I want to do what I want right now. And that doesn't mean I want to retire early. I, I get personally driven by working differently and just work in general. And so yeah. I want to give that back out to the the folks I work with so that they don't come to work every day dreading that. Yeah. I'm just here to to work eight hours so that I can, you know, not work eight hours later this week. That's right. I totally, yeah, totally resonates with me. And, and I've been in those kind of situations where I've dreaded work you know a previous uh, uh, organizations and it, it is not nice and and invariably as a leader you tend to then kind of convey that further down the chain um, so it's, it's kind of um, a horrible snowballing effect so I mean that's fantastic and and so being really honest okay I mean, this is a bit of a tough question for you Shane yeah. um, in terms of that leadership approach that you've taken um, has it worked for you Sure. So it's worked for me and it hasn't worked. I would say it works best with the people I'm leading. It's uh, not everybody's going to go to this and some people rightfully just do work because it's work and that's fair. But a lot of people, especially, I mean, we are, we are very privileged. We work in the software industry on the Maslow hierarchy of need. All we're looking for is self-actualization. None of us are uh, going week to week, hopefully, um, worried about paychecks. So we're already in this self-actualization stage often. And so teams usually find that um, really well. I 100% uh, am, am always having maybe healthy complex conflicts, sometimes unhealthy, with peers or other leadership um whether it's it doesn't necessarily need to be somebody that I'm reporting to, but my ideas are not the norm in the way I do it. And so I am seen as, you know, I can be seen as naive or obstructionist or just um, inefficient. <laughs> um, I have a pretty thick skin and just don't care. It's my rebellious nature mostly just says I don't care, yes. um, which is nice it probably also makes me prickly in in some places because i don't play the same games yeah um but it, it's hard i think it's ultimately though it's finding that uh you know i lucked into finding a you know one in a hundred company that was already open to thinking differently and really just allowed me to explore the space and ultimately all of us to expand it a bit more um, as it grows, it gets harder. And especially cause like, you know, the best wisdom of the new folks who come in will conflict. Um, and it's, yeah, it's hard. There's, there's failings every day and there's, there's wins every day, but you know, ultimately, like I said, I, I work because I like it and I like this challenge. So it's just, just is what it is. And it's okay to, to, to have the failing and learn from it every single day. So that's quite interesting. You you mentioned diversity there. Cause obviously you're a, you're a, diversity of thinking thinker you know you kind of you're a little bit uh off i'm not going to use that word norm you know it's not about normal it's just you, you think differently and you kind of identified that and uh and the organizations i've worked with that's worked really well because you get better ideas there's a kind of healthy friction you know um uh, and, and we can come together to kind of find what what kind of works best so in terms of uh that diversity in leadership I mean, how do you think you can uh make that more inviting and uh more constructive for the organization and people 
Yeah. So I think one of the big ones with the, if you think of the, the diversity is, I think it actually is more inviting and um, more people are able to exceed, to succeed if we think differently in these terms of success looking differently. I think a big problem in uh, even our diversity thinking right now is say, we'll say everybody has a chance to succeed. We're open to all ideas, but we still have this very specific implicit meritocracy that has the same, let's just be completely blunt, male-centered version of success. And that is not going to work for, it doesn't matter if it's a woman or a, a man, it's not going to work for people who don't have that same level of, or same viewpoint on success. And so first and foremost, we have to get out of that. I mean, personally, I would throw the meritocracy word out of there because it's been so co-opted to a very one path fits everybody version of success. You know, it's just everybody can't succeed in the same way. So yes. we've got to look at that and look at diversity in terms of diversity of success and how that looks and especially people. And I'm a big proponent of, I think there's a, oftentimes we'll hear the diversity argument and we'll put it into hiring and say, well, we're just going to hire the best person for the job. Inevitably, that person's probably going to look exactly like me and think like me. And I think we've really got, there's, I don't have solutions of exactly how to make that better other than to be very explicit of like, we are going to hire more women. We are going to hire more um, LGBTQ, whatever it is, we're going to do it. And we're going to display our diversity to change our minds. Um, it's, I think it's a really easy thing to say. We just have diversity of experience or thought, but it's not very visible um, and it just can be hidden. So by by having very visible diversity, it starts us down the pathway of actually accepting true diversity of thought or diversity of experience. Um, so I really think it starts there and we have to commit to it. And I know it's it's really hard. It's uh, to be the first person to potentially say, because often your leadership teams cannot expand to add more folks to it, they're going to have to replace people and to be somebody comfortable enough to be like, I can step out of the way to let somebody, you know, an increase of diversity of experience and thought and come in there is a very hard thing that a lot of leaders won't do. It's I've had the luxury of being able to do that a couple times. And I'll tell you every time pays forward and ends up being greater for for you. But it's a very hard step to take to yeah. kind of step out of what feels like the limelight and really just it's again, I think it's actually being stuck in the scientific hierarchy of thinking and you've got to get past that anyway, mm -hmm. but that's the only way you're going to nurture um, diversity. There is to have true visible diversity to just bootstrap um, the diversity of thought everywhere else. I love it. That's great. Yes. And just to kind of put a plug in there, uh, uh, we kind of mentioned mm -hmm. your podcast around IT labs, you know, we've got a high diversity of uh, leadership, you know, so, um, it's actually kind of the inverse of normal companies, which is, uh, I think, about kind of 80% of the women leaders, you know, and uh, a lot of the engineers, which is something I didn't notice until it got pointed out to me, uh, which is which is a good thing. So, yeah, diversity, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. And it sounds like um, you're, you're kind of fighting to make it happen as opposed to kind of thinking about it. And, um, you know, you know, it's working when you see it. I, I love that. Exactly. That way. Yeah. Um, so in terms of... Um, tech leaders in your kind of position leading the technology within the organization you know from the business perspective and the tech business uh, because 
ultimately, uh, us, you know, you tech leaders, uh, men and women, are defining which direction the companies go. You know, um, you really are holding that space because all companies are interwoven into the fabric of the digital kind of world. Um, so, how do you kind of find that balance between the kind of the tech side and the and the and the business? Do you, do you kind of have a struggle, internal struggle there? I used to have an immense internal struggle of I was first and foremost a developer or engineer and I did things pure or right or whatever was in my mind of the, the correct way to do things. Uh, and then it was it, through being a leader and getting to know Team Snap as a business and a lot of other businesses, especially coaching folks, realizing that every single problem inside of a business when it comes to technology is actually a business problem. It's there is nothing that outwardly says you need to be on rails five or rails six. There is nothing there in the world that will drive you to do that other than there's a business problem. The business problem could be we can't hire people on for the old version. We can't support it. It's insecure, whatever. But starting to think of this as business problems and not technical problems. It's I'm a pretty big against the idea of even something like technical debt. These were all business trade-offs that we made. We may have made them implicitly or forgot them along the way of why we made them, but we still made these decisions. And so that's more and more what I think and talk to my teams about today is everything we're doing is a business decision. And sometimes that means we need to really dig in and figure out how this is a business decision. Why is it that we need to keep our uh, security patches installed? Um, it's You could very easily short a cut as a leader and just make it a, a practice or a process that you do it. But to really sell it on the ownership of like we do this because it's a business it's a business reason to protect the privacy and security of our users because ultimately we don't exist as a company if we invalidate that and just figuring out the second and third order effects of that so yeah. that's where I come from is it's just more and more I'm not I'm still deeply interested in the technology but I don't tie it to my self worth and making sure that I'm you know on react hooks. It's just, I want to get there because it's going to drive the business thing. And there's all kinds of reasons it could, but I don't, I think it's lazy thinking to not drive it to a business outcome and just go to a shortcut of like, you do it because you do it. Um, That goes back to my philosophy of that sounds like you're just doing a nine to five to do it. And because you want to do something else. And I just don't feel that way. Yeah. I like that. It's kind of mapping uh, your activities directly to the kind of business outcomes and, and uh, ideally customer centric uh, business outcomes. Um, exactly. yeah, yeah, and is it? And, and I guess it's kind of speaking to values. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I like uh, agile because you can speak to the values. And you know, are, are we honouring it or are we kind of grating against it? Um, which kind of brings me to that question, really. In terms of agile, is that something that you do within your organisation? We do the lowercase a agile. So we are agile in that we are going to do things uh, much more ad hoc or just in time is probably the better description for it. Um, we plan enough. We we uh, do MVPs enough. We do those things. We don't subscribe to a very specific methodology of Scrum or Kanban or SAFE. 
we're pretty close to shape up from base camp, but we're really not that. And ultimately, we are about being legitimately agile to what our business needs are and not trying to go to a framework. It's I think there is some nice benefits of having something to refer to. Um, and especially when you're hiring, sometimes it's difficult if you're not, we are scrum or this, but nobody actually is that. I think one of the biggest failures around this that we ever had was early in my leadership uh, time at Team Snap. We, that uh, Spotify video went around where everybody, you know, this matrix organization and guilds and all this stuff. And they're like, oh, that is, that is great. That is where we wanted to be. We want to be. And we tried to just copy and paste it in quite literally spent like years failing at it, like trying to get it right. And like going back to the source and what are we doing wrong and eventually accepting uh, that it didn't fit us and that we needed to find our own thing. I think the really interesting thing is eventually we hired somebody from Spotify and learned that the videos were just entirely made up and not actually ever implemented. They were quite simply aspirational and like almost internal uh internal propaganda to try to get the the internals of spotify to work that way yeah and that just again reinforced of you need to do what fits your company and that's going to be the culture of the company it's going to be the people it's going to be the business problem and just applying specific practices and rules without that is at you know at a minimum going to cause friction when they rub up against culture and is maximum going to cause harm because it's going to spin out and churn out an organization that is that is um kind of weak that's right i I, yeah you you got to align to the the needs of the organization and uh yeah this kind of cookie cutter approaches um don't really work and i guess the story here is a testament to that is you know just ask the organization what does it need you know um, and, and base it around some kind of simple values and principles, you know, and, and see what, what's the right thing to do. Um, and, and in terms of your teams, uh, do, obviously everybody's working remotely, I guess, now at the moment. How, how have you found that? Well, luckily, uh, TeamSnap was accidentally founded as a remote company. The, the co-founders, one was in Portland, one was in Boulder, and they thought both of their cities were cool and didn't want to move. So they just decided to try remote, you know, a little bit over a decade ago and it's worked for us. um, And we've been there since I will say what we have experienced is probably a smaller version of what everybody else experienced, but we did have a home office in Boulder and somewhere 15 and 20 people, which is about probably 10% of the org at that time would go into the office. And so there was quite a big shift when they couldn't go to the office anymore and everybody had to start working as a distributed company. But we did talk a lot more about that. It's we already had the foundations. So there were definitely some people who suffered more because they had never fully embraced the fact that we were remote and distributed. Right. Um, but overall, I mean, that being said, the distributed work we do now versus when we could meet in person is much more strained. People are... Uh, they just have emotional baggage that they're carrying because of the way the world is and it's showing up in their day-to-day work and that's okay as long as I think we as leaders had to recognize it and just have grace there of like this is unprecedented and the way we would have done things in the past even as a remote company we had to change just because 
it's, you know, unexpected. We didn't care about time zones and when you work to begin with, but now it's even more so of like, we don't really think you can work the full hours, whatever that was. You've got childcare, you're dealing with just emotional baggage, all these things, um, really having to have that grace to recognize it. And it's not like we immediately did it. We totally, you know, fumbled the ball uh, multiple times. I can remember, uh, we had to furlough folks pretty early on because we're a sports-based company and no sports were playing. Yes. And I can remember talking to the employees who weren't furloughed and asking them to put their thumb on the scale of the work-life scale to work more right now, to essentially work harder, to try to say, you know, keep the business afloat and hopefully bring as, back as many folks as possible. Retrospectively, I don't know if that was the right message, uh, I still debate that, but I definitely took too long to remind people to take their thumb off and just get, you know, put some more back on life or to take a breath. It took me having to explicitly take multiple long vacations in the summer, even though I didn't want to, to get that uh, message through to folks. Right. And I still, yeah, kind of regret it of like, hindsight's twenty twenty, and we should, should well, geez, yeah, hindsight's yeah. twenty twenty. it is what it is. Uh, and we, we couldn't have known how long it was going to stretch at the same time in any, if I was ever in a similar position again, I don't think I would tell people to work harder and work more. There's too much out of our control at that moment. What we really want to do is to support them. And it's except that they lost friends that, you know, left the company forever and, even in the isolation that happened that worsened it and just not recognizing that sooner uh, always has bummed me out since then. Brilliant. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I love your reflection there and seeing, um, yeah, I, I, th- I think this is a, uh, that's a good thing to do to kind of realize what could do better and, and getting that balance, you know, because I don't think many leaders kind of consider that. And uh, it's great to kind of hear a, a, te- uh, a leader uh, reflecting on what really matters, you know, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's good. Uh, and so in terms of the kind of performance of your teams now, remote, is that kind of all settled down? Uh, how how would you find it now? Yeah, it's it's settled. We've we've reached a, a happy state. I will say that people are, it's not burnout, but they're definitely rightfully not able to go as hard as they were before. I think it's really, you just don't have the opportunities to decompress that you did um, such that you could go hard. And so we have a good steady state. Is it our most efficient steady state? No, but we have taken that idea and go, how can we just become more effective then? it's We're not going to be efficient Uh, I don't even know I personally like the word, but we can get more effective. So we looked at things just like automating more stuff across the company, removing burdens from folks. And so they can give all they have to the things that matter most at TeamSnap. And that's really what it is, is, uh, the best we can ask for right now. Again, we could be a different company and just try to churn through some folks right now. The the market, there's a lot of people out there, but it's not ultimately who we want to be. It's we do not want to eat up our employees just to go faster at this moment. Yeah, that's right. Okay, brilliant. So we're kind of coming towards the end of our time together. Um, um, I've got a, actually, I'm going to be uh, the tech leader genie for a second. Okay, so I'm kind of the, the tech genie and I can give you anything you want to help your either your end customers or your kind of company uh, 
you know, deal with things better. What would that be? What would you, what would your wish be? My, I would, big wish is I wish the maintenance of technology was more straightforward and understood at across the business level. Like, I don't know what magic voodoo needs to be there, Jeannie, <laughs> but something needs to happen so that we can all embrace the idea of raising our software that we've already created while creating new software. It's at some point productivity goes to zero because you've created so much that you have to maintain it and it's just an unwinnable race. I think there's a way to do that that we just haven't unlocked. So I'd snap that. Oh, wow. Uh, I would, I would love to snap and just say JavaScript, everybody gets onto one framework and it's solid for the next decade and we're not jumping frameworks every two years. Um, just that drives me absolutely bananas um, that it's, I like the fast moving pace of innovation, but it's uh, just exhausting from a business perspective to constantly deal with. That would be wish number two. Uh, in I think wish number three from a tech thing is to... Uh, from leadership, have people immediately recognize what they they say, like engineers can be productive wherever, whenever, and just embrace that and let it go. Like, I wish we could get more into that. I feel like uh, we're trying to find ways to understand that people are productive versus look at their outcomes. And so if, you, if we can find a way to measure outcomes better, and have it really aligned, I would I would love it because I think it would take a lot of burden off of engineers to prove how effective they are. Wow, love it. Great. Your three wishes, I'll see what I can do for you. <laughs> you haven't granted <laughs> them yet? Jeez. <laughs> uh, um, and, and, and finally, what would uh, what's the kind of key takeaway that Lily, you'd like to leave with the tech leader women and men out there um, to kind of, you know, your biggest learning? Yeah, I think my biggest learning as a leader goes to one of my last kind of ways I conduct myself is to trust others freely. I think too often we wait and make people earn our trust and respect instead of just give it. They're humans. They, we should just freely give it to them. There's no doubt that people can lose trust. There are ways to break it. But I think we impede ourselves by every new hire having to come in and prove their that they are trustworthy and they are deserving of respect. Or is I think the biggest anti-pattern is when, as a leader, you go into an existing organization and expect everyone there to earn your respect and trust um, that is already there. You should give that to them freely. They've built something there and let them have it immediately. I think if you can just trust others, they're humans, they usually have the best interest at heart when you get down to it. You have open, authentic conversations. I think you can go a lot further than having to start from a place of earn my trust, earn my respect. Um, I just I find that to be an anti-pattern that I would love to eliminate from the world of period, let alone leadership. Brilliant. Lovely. Great wise words there. And uh, so thank you very much, Shane. Um, it's been great having you on board. Lots of uh, uh, nuggets of wisdom there. Uh, which we'd like to kind of share once the podcast is out. So thank you very much, sir. Thanks for having me. And there we have it. Another great tech leader, Team Snap, and anyone that works with Shane must be very grateful for having such a leader of leaders in their realm. There were many takeaways from the podcast. Here are the few of my favourite highlights. Firstly, 
There is huge power in providing trust from the word going organizations. You don't need to earn it, just offer it by default. Secondly, I love the perspective that all tech decisions are business decisions. It makes you think about the impact on the business and provide a solid why we are doing something. Thirdly, and not quite finally, the importance of enjoying work. We spend so much time there and I love Shane's perspective on making sure we as leaders help ourselves and our people honour this as much as possible. Fourthly, and now finally, I really like Shane's sharing of his new perspective on diversity and success, especially about the very masking perspective we have on success. That one hit on a subject very close to my personal purpose. So thank you, Shane. The force is strong in you, sir. Your philosophy on work and life inspires. And finally, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Labs services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.